This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. This is episode 10 for October 14, 2016. Other theories possible. Lestrade shook his head, though it seemed to me that his manner was less absolutely assured than before. Well, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, you may look for your tramp, and while you are finding him, we will hold on to our man. The future will show which is right. Just notice this point, Mr. Holmes, that so far as we know, none of the papers were removed, and that the prisoner is the one man in the world who had no reason for removing them, since he was heir at law, and would come into them in any case. My friend seemed struck by this remark. I don't mean to deny that the evidence is in some ways very strongly in favor of your theory, said he. I only wish to point out there are other theories possible. As you say, the future will decide. In the Norwood Builder, as in so many cases, Holmes decides to follow a clue ignored by the regular police force, and solves the mystery by going in an entirely different direction from them. But in this discussion, he doesn't force the point or insist that he has the right theory and Lestrade has the wrong one. He just notes that there is more than one possible answer. As he more famously states in A Scandal in Bohemia, it is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories, instead of theories to suit facts. Holmes can see a number of potential solutions, and it is only by gathering data and considering it carefully that he will find the right one. Of course, since, if you'll forgive me breaking out of the game for a moment, Holmes happens to be in a mystery story, and so there's a singular solution to find. Theories about the crime can be disproven and eliminated, and only one can be true. When it comes to theorizing about people, even, no, especially fictional people, things are a bit more nebulous. And I never cease to be amazed by the way some readers are willing to discuss and debate every aspect of a character, except for one particular facet, which they've decided they won't even entertain speculation about. Like Lestrade, they're unwilling to recognize that there are other theories possible. Welcome to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes. Not necessarily in that order. I'm your host, Beth. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can get in touch with me at comments at thistangledskein.com. I'm also on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Litzy, and Ravelry as Plexipa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. Today's tea is another Kara McGee Sherlock fandom blend. This one's called The Badge and the Gun. Her description is short and sweet. A strong, solid cup of tea you can rely on when everything else has got you down. Adagia says the ingredients are black tea, green tea, some melody tea, Ceylon Sonata tea, orange peels, natural hazelnut flavor, natural spice flavor, cinnamon bark, and ginger root, and recommends brewing it at 205 degrees Fahrenheit for three minutes. Since until a week or so ago, temperatures here were still in the 90s, somewhere just over 32 degrees for you folks on the Celsius scale, I've still been experimenting with iced tea. I brewed two teaspoons of the blend in one cup of water at 200 degrees, which is 93 and a third outside the U.S., added a teaspoon of honey while it was still hot, 
and then poured the whole thing into a 20 ounce tumbler full of ice. It's very nearly perfect. I'm going to try brewing it at a slightly lower temperature because of the green tea in the mix and see how that turns out. The spiced green tea comes through very strongly in the blend, along with the hazelnut and ginger. The name of this tea, much like last month's The Government and the Inspector, is a reference to BBC Sherlock characters, in this case, Greg Lestrade and John Watson. Make of their possible relationship what you will. At the very least, I really enjoy imagining the two of them going for pints. I have a whole batch of new tea blends on deck. I am such a sucker for Adagio's email promotions. Free honey with purchase? Sign me up! I took the opportunity to go through my wish list and order some seasonally themed flavors. Because fall is coming, I tell you. Or at least Halloween is coming. From Braun Midwinter's Nightmare Before Christmas blends, I ordered sample tins of Halloween Town Latte, Man's Best Ghost, This is Halloween, and Trick or Treat. That last one has sprinkles in it. And red peppercorn. It smells delicious. I also ordered a sample tin of a blend called Regions Beyond by Emma Mosier, which is part of a set of Haunted Mansion teas. It has my beloved lapsang in it, along with masala chai and spearmint. I'm intrigued. I love these sample tins. Each one makes about five cups, so it breaks down to a dollar a cup, or slightly less if you put some of the $5 purchase price toward the reusable tin itself. It's enough for me to figure out if I like a blend enough to order more of it, for example, the five ounce tin of Molly Hooper blend currently in my tea drawer, but not so much that getting a blend I find I don't like is too concerning. Looking at my stack of tiny tea tins, it did occur to me that if I talk about one tea each episode, it's going to be a really, really, really long time before I get to all of them, so I've started posting some short reviews on my blog. You can find that at morethantrue.com. Last episode, I mentioned that I bought what I thought was my local comic shop's only copy of the first issue of Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbook. This month, I was not quite so lucky. I was working the day of the release, and when I got to the shop two days later, they had no copies. The other local comic shop didn't have any either. I ended up ordering online from a shop called Atomic Empire in Durham, North Carolina. I chose that particular shop because they didn't mark up the cover price in addition to the shipping fees unlike some others I looked at. I have pre-ordered issues 3 and 4 from a somewhat local shop, Things from Another World, so I should not have this problem with the next issue. Mind you, I didn't leave my local shop empty-handed. I did buy issue 1 of Titan Comics' Torchwood by John Barrowman, Carol Barrowman, Antonio Fuso, Pasquale Colano, and Marco Lesco. It looks highly promising. But back to Mycroft. My second issue of Mycroft Holmes in the Apocalypse Handbook by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Raymond Obstfeld, Joshua Cassara, Louis Guerrero, and Simon Bolin arrived nicely bagged and boarded just a few days after ordering. In this issue, we get to see Mycroft show off his cleverness by deducing the whereabouts of some important documents, by examining the contents of the pockets of the man who hid those documents, and his boldness, not to mention his flirtatiousness, by apparently stealing a kiss from none other than Queen Victoria herself. As you can tell, this is not the Mycroft we have known. This is young action hero Mycroft, quick with his fists as well as his wits, and his lips. In several senses, really. He's described in the opening of the issue as a genius and playboy, and he does seem more kin to Tony Stark than to Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock, by the way, is entirely absent from this installment. Mycroft isn't the only familiar figure rendered rather unfamiliar, though. 
Queen Victoria appears quite young and lovely for a lady in her fifties, and is wearing beautiful dresses that are most certainly not the morning black one would expect. I'm not, in general, a visual person, so comics are not my go-to medium. I have a tendency to focus on the text, and then I have to go back and reread, in a sense, the pictures. There are a few panels in this issue where, frankly, I still don't know what's happening, and I don't know if it's because I'm missing something or the image is intentionally confusing, containing information to be elaborated on later. Well, I do have some time before the next issue comes to figure it out, I guess. My local Scion Society, the Curious Collectors of Baker Street, had their annual metal quiz event in September. This year, the quiz was on the solitary cyclist. I reviewed the story several times. I even wrote a short quiz on it myself for the Watson Society site. I thought I was pretty thoroughly prepared. I was not prepared. Mostly I was not prepared for the format. Rather than a written quiz where everyone answers the same questions and whoever does the best is the winner, this was more like a spelling bee. Those of us taking the quiz stood in a line, and last year's winner, who wrote the quiz for this year, asked the first person in line a question. If the person got it right, she moved on to the next person and the next question. If the person got it wrong, that person was out, and the next person could either answer the same question or take a new question. Single elimination, no passes. Which introduces a bit of an element of luck to the whole thing. I made it about halfway through before I was knocked out. The really frustrating part was that I knew the answer, but I second-guessed myself and the answer I gave wasn't quite right. One day, I will learn to trust that first answer. That will, of course, be the day that the second answer is the right one, won't it? Anyway, now I know what to expect for next year. And having tried my hand at writing a quiz for the very first time, I've discovered that it's really kind of fun. I'm definitely going to be doing more of that in the coming months. In a couple of months, I should also be receiving my copy of the game Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty's Web. The Kickstarter campaign was successful, although it was something of a nail-biter in the last couple days as the total slowly edged toward the funding threshold. It is an unusual game, with movable tiles rather than a board, and the players compete against the game instead of each other. I'm really excited to try this out. September was a break month in Nerdopolis, with the new tournament beginning in October. During the break, Cute Critter War 12 happened, though. There were a lot of adorable creatures. I crocheted a little Pikachu for Team Mystic, which is, by the way, also my team in the actual Pokemon Go app. My crochet skills are pretty basic. My grandmother taught me to crochet when I was small, and I remember being very comfortable with it. But at some point, I got older, and I stopped spending weeks during the summer at my grandparents' house in Peoria Heights and I stopped crocheting. Yeah, that's only one of a whole list of things I'd really like to have a chat with teenage me about. Anyway, over the last several years, I've tried to relearn crochet. I have an afghan made of blocks of different stitches that has been languishing for a while. And I got that Star Wars Amigurumi set for my birthday, from which I now have a partially completed crochet Yoda. But I did manage to finish Pikachu. He's a little lumpy and uneven, but my daughter likes him which is what really matters. I have a better handle on the magic ring technique used in a lot of Amigurumi. Now, to move beyond the single crochet. I had planned to knit some tiny bees for the fundraiser coming up at my daughter's school. I did knit the body of one, 
but I don't like it. I decided to try knitting with worsted weight rather than DK, and this was a mistake. The smaller ones are just cuter. Also, a few rounds from the end, one of my needles snapped in my hand. I think that might have been a sign. Finding the right yarn for these beads has been a challenge. When I started making them, I had picked up some SMC Bravo from a sale bin at my local yarn store. It was perfect for the little knitted bees. The trouble is that yarn was on sale at least partly because of the fact that it was discontinued. The weird thing is that according to the manufacturer's site, the yarn is still available. But according to that site, the yarn is available at the same local yarn store where I originally bought it, and that store closed last year. So there's that. The one online store I've found that carries it is out of stock in both yellow and black, and it doesn't look like it's coming back. I've been using Baroku Comfort DK, but it's not the ideal substitute. It's more slippery and splitty. I think this might be why I haven't been all that motivated to work on the bees. Because of the break month for Nerdopolis, I nearly forgot that September is the beginning of a new set of sock down challenges in the Sock Knitters Anonymous group on Ravelry. The challenge theme for September was literary. I initially thought of working on the Elementary Watson Socks by Sherry Menton, but one of the rules for the theme challenge was that the pattern had to be inspired by the literature itself and not by some other medium, in this case the BBC Sherlock TV series, so those are going back on hold. There was another pattern in my queue that stood out for this theme though, Lenore by Stephanie Pearl McPhee. If you've been a part of the online knitting world for a while, you might remember the absolute craze in 2007 when Blue Moon Fiber Arts released the Raven series. For those of you who don't know, here's a nutshell version. Blue Moon Fiber Arts is a well-known yarn dyer based in the Pacific Northwest, known for some gorgeous and unique colorways. Their Socks That Rock sock yarn has been very popular, and 10 years ago, it was harder to get than it is today. In 2007, they ran some slightly cryptic ads in Interweave Knits with photos of raven's wings and deeply saturated yarn in similar colors and captioned it the Raven Series, Fall 2007. This spoke to the teenage goth who lives deep in my soul. In October of that year, the Rock and Sock Club got a skein of the colorway Lenore and Stephanie's sock pattern. The main colorways in the series went up for sale and I did buy three of those, and then when the Sock Club exclusivity period ended and the Lenore yarn and pattern were available to the rest of us, I bought those too. And then they sat in my stash. Finally, on September 30th, their time arrived. I wound up the yarn, printed out the pattern, and cast on. I got through the main lace repeat, decided the needle size was wrong, and ripped out and cast on again just minutes before 11 p.m. Pacific time, and realized I had just disqualified myself from the challenge. All the sock down challenges follow a simple rule about dates. You can cast on any time between 12 a.m. on the first of the month and 11.59 p.m. on the last day of the month, and you have until 11.59 p.m. on the last day of the following month to complete it. So, for September, cast on any time between midnight September 1st and 11.59 p.m. September 30th, and you have until 11.59 p.m. on October 31st to finish and post a photo. All times, are in the Eastern Time Zone. 11 p.m. Pacific Time is 2 a.m. the following day Eastern Time, making my cast-on date October 1st. Oops. October 1st was also the day the new Nerdopolis tournament started, so I was pleased as punch to discover that the Nerdopolis University theme was Edgar Allan Poe. How perfect is that? And the October Sockdown Challenge technique is lace, 
so Lenore still qualifies there too. I finished the leg and turned the heel on the first sock. I also knit the entire gusset, only to realize that while I thought I had the pattern memorized, I did not. So I had to rip that back out. And then I put it in a timeout while I work on a new spinning project with some old fat fiber merino samples and get cracking on finishing a gift knitting project that really should have been done a good month ago. Sherlock Seattle, or Watson, Washington, is coming fast. I have my new moo cards, I had a batch made for the Watson Society, and a batch made for the podcast. And I have Watsonian badge ribbons to give away. I have a feeling the con itself is going to fly by, but I'd love to get a chance to meet up with you. Leave a comment in the show notes, or email comments at thistangledskein.com to get in touch with me. You'll also be able to find me at four panels. I'll be at Podcasting 101, I'll be at Watson, Dr. Soldier, Banff. I'll be at Mind the Gap, Bridging Sherlockian Fandom. And finally, I will be moderating a Society for Our Dear Doctor, which will be a panel on Sunday all about the Watson Society. I'll also be spending quite a bit of time at the Watson Society vendor table. We'll have back issues of the Watsonian, the Fiction Series, and the Monograph Series, as well as memberships. If the stars and the U.S. Postal Service align, we'll also have copies of About 60, Why Every Sherlock Holmes Story is the Best. I am so excited about this book. I wrote the essay on Charles Augustus Milverton, which of course is the actual best story, but I've been looking forward to reading the other 59 essays for ages. Okay, for months, but it feels like ages, but there are absolutely amazing writers in this book. Chris Redman put the whole thing together, and he's been posting a bunch of tweets about the various chapters during the lead-up to the publication date of October 11th. I have a great need to read Eleanor Gray's essay on the murder pony. I mean, Silver Blaze. One of his very intriguing tweets reads, Reasons to buy About 60, number 55. An essay on the three Garadubs takes the John Locke option seriously. The book is available from Wildside Press's website and on Amazon. But if you're going to Sherlock Seattle, please do consider buying a copy from us at the Watson Society. One of the cool things about the book, aside from the whole concept and all the authors, is that it benefits the Beacon Society. Rather than split royalties 61 ways, just imagine the accounting headache there, royalties from the book are being donated to the Beacon Society. Get a great book full of awesome writing and benefit a good Sherlockian cause. Win-win! Brad Kefauver recently posted an entry on Sherlock Peoria called Thaddeus Sholto Isn't Mace Windu Either, Ya Crazies, that got me thinking. He wrote about how Rex Stout's original presentation of his paper, Watson Was a Woman, to the Baker Street Irregulars in 1941 was a very different experience from what it would be today. Stout had to think his idea through enough to compose a paper, which he then stood in front of a room full of people to read out loud and hear their reactions immediately and personally. The tale goes on to say that they picked him up and physically tossed him into the snow, which, true or not, is a particularly funny inversion of the metaphorical flames that would likely be thrown his way today. Flames thrown, as Brad notes, by people from the comfort of their own homes, where they wouldn't have to see his reaction, or even reveal their identity to him. They certainly wouldn't have to consider their responses thoroughly enough to compose a paper refuting the original points, as Julian Wolfe did in That Was No Lady, which he delivered at another BSI dinner a full year later. 
Our ability to communicate our ideas just about as fast as they can occur to us without the interference of gatekeepers has given many people a voice they would not have had in the past. We have opportunities to connect with people halfway around the world and discuss and debate around the clock. But how are we using those opportunities? What kind of debates are we having? I was a member of my high school debate team for one season. I really wasn't very good at it, which is why I only did it that one year before switching over to the individual events speech team. But I remember that the very best debaters had two really important traits. First, they could think on their feet, able to respond in a logical way, supported by evidence to their opponent's arguments. Second, and quite possibly more important, they could argue either side of an issue. Going into a debate meet, you knew the topic, but you didn't know which side you had to argue. The year that I was on the team, the national policy topic was resolved, that the United States government should significantly increase space exploration beyond the Earth's mesosphere. And thanks, by the way, to Wikipedia for having a list of recent resolutions that goes back to 1928. Anyway, you could be assigned to argue either pro or con, and you really had to be able to do both. Having to be able to refute your own arguments meant you really had to think your points through, I'll tell you that. And it meant you couldn't simply see your opponents as wrong, 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 because you were well aware of the evidence supporting their arguments. We can recognize that Stout didn't really think Watson was a woman, but he could stand up in front of a crowd and argue it, and accept their good-natured jeers and being literally thrown out of the room. And even if no one in the room agreed with his suggestion, they weren't going to cast him as some sort of enemy for life. Everyone could laugh and go back to smoking and drinking and whatever else that room full of men did with no ladies around. Yeah, that's a topic for another time. And that's all I have for you this month. So until next time, I bid you goodbye. Listening to This Tangled Skein, a monthly podcast about yarn, tea, and Sherlock Holmes, not necessarily in that order. Show notes can be found at thistangledskein.com, and you can reach me by email at comments at thistangledskein.com. I can also be found on most forms of social media, including Twitter, Instagram, Litzy, and Ravelry as Plexippa. That's P as in Porlock, L-E-X-I-P-P-A. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving a review or a star rating on iTunes.